Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and I am super excited about today's episode because I have an absolutely special guest on today's show. Today's guest develops and delivers curriculum on the art and practice of small business consulting. He is also a contributor to industry publications and has spoken at many conferences worldwide on project management, pricing, and knowledge workers. That's a very important phrase that we're probably going to talk about on the show. He also hosts the Sage Advice podcast, which has several hundred episodes published over many years. And then most importantly for me, this is the one that I listen to the most. He also co-hosts the Voice America talk show networks, The Soul of Enterprise, with his dear friend, Ron Baker. I highly encourage you to check out that show. In the meantime, on our show, please welcome Ed Kless. Hello, Ed. Justin, great to be with you. The one way I didn't describe you, but I'm going to now, is that you are my brother-in-law's brother-in-law, which yes, I think- brother-in-law's once removed. That's, yeah, that's right. <laughs> which I think we've decided officially means absolutely nothing other than we're two guys that happen to live in the same county in Texas. Uh, <laughs> And but, share a brother-in-law. And we share a brother-in-law. And we run into each other at family uh, get-togethers and stuff like that. But you're also uh, a very dear friend and a fantastic mentor. And I'm really excited to introduce you to, uh, to our listening audience. So let's get started the same way that we do with all of our other guests. And give me your take on what you think is the biggest challenge facing the deskless workforce today. This is a really good question because in the conversations that you and I have had, I've, I've begun to get a more and more of an appreciation for what these folks do. And, and I was, I'm going to say it's, it's bringing their humanity to, their job, to the job. I think that's a challenge for many businesses today, but I think especially for those on the front line, how they, they need to bring their humanity because they're, they're challenged in all sorts of different directions. The, from a measurement standpoint, but also a judgment standpoint. And, and once you, you dive into the realm of a judgment standpoint, that's where, as you brought up the term, knowledge worker begins to kick in because you really can't measure knowledge workers. You can only judge them and usually by other knowledge workers. So it's, it's, the, it's the quality of the work, not necessarily the quantity that comes out. And I think that, that other people having that understanding about them is, is perhaps the biggest challenge. I think that's a fantastic way for us to start the show. And I, I want to come back and, and talk about a couple of um, the differences and maybe similarities between what we would traditionally think of as a knowledge worker and what we talk about on our show is the kind of frontline desk, you know, deskless workforce. But before I do that, I, I want to give our audience a, an opportunity to understand your background, how you came into the role that you have today. And I would love for you to just give us a few minutes of, of going all the way back to the consulting firm that, that you ran earlier on in your career. So tell us a little bit about that and how you ended up where you're at today. Well, I go back a little bit further to my first gig out of college was at, a, at an accounting firm on Long Island. And it was very weird because I was a non-accountant 
and uh, I, it, this was back in the the late 1980s, and I was I, I I got an office day one, but it really wasn't the office. It was called the computer room, <laughs> and it had two IBM ATs in it. And it was hysterically funny because most of the, the guys, and they were all guys at the time, who were partners in the firm, refused to cross the threshold. Like, they would not come into the room. If they were ta- wanted to talk to me, they would stand, like, outside the door and just stick their head in because they didn't want to be, like, associated with a keyboard, I think. They didn't and want to get sucked in. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, I don't, I don't do keyboard. <laughs> and the irony, of course, is I'd, I, I think four or five years later when I left the firm, everybody had a computer on their desk or had a laptop or something like that. So it was really a, a, a transformative time. Yeah. And what year was that? That was 19, I think, 1988. Yeah. Early, okay. that's when I first got the first gig. And I think I was there for, I want to say, five or six years or so. But where, where you then went with is the firm that I, I was a partner in where we deployed and and it helped implement accounting software back in the, you know, client server days. So it was, you know, <laughs> everybody remembers that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, so that was, that was a, an awful lot of fun. You know, I got crawled around on, on, on my hands and knees, plugging in coaxial cable for a, for a while, BNC connectors, all kinds of insane technology stuff just to get the accounting system to work. Uh, of course, the, the one of my fun stories is that is the is the time that that this guy called me up in absolute panic, screaming that the the network was down, it wouldn't work. It was only two computers, two computers connected together. That and that makes up a network. That's that's a network, <laughs> right? So, and he was just pissed, right, that this whole thing was going down. Well, I finally show up at their office, and what had happened was is he had yeah they had this big safe in the corner, and he had closed the safe door, and it had cut the cable. It, <laughs> Like, like, well, not going to work when this is the case. <laughs> That's definitely going to impact the quality of the network. That's yeah, good, yeah, yeah. The, the electrons can't jump. <laughs> they don't. They don't have that yeah. capability yet. So yeah, he yeah he he was, but he was mad at me for it. And then when he realized that it was something that he had done, which is close this big safe door on the cable, he got quiet. Yeah, he got quiet really quickly. Uh, so, but there, but there were just a. It, it was a really good time in in the industry that I was in because they, we were we were moving a lot of folks from green bar paper and and T accounts all the way up to the you know the first computerized accounting systems and it was it was really interesting to see how how people reacted and and, and in a lot of ways what you're talking about the frontline worker was in in a, in effect the AP clerk the the AR clerk of of days of yore they were on the front line. They they all had to go to the office. And by the way, there there's what I'll, I, my brief definition of, of of understanding knowledge workers, and it's it really is lacking. Is that knowledge workers instead of having to bring their coffee to the office, can bring their office to the coffee. I love that. Right. And I. Th- but but it's really a bit of a misnomer because the folks that I was working with they were knowledge workers, but they still had to bring their 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 coffee to the office because they were tethered to this thing called a computer that had to be, at the time, plugged in and certainly had multiple cables running to it, whereas what has allowed knowledge workers to untether from that has been you know, Wi-Fi and those kinds of things. Yeah. Did you use the term digital transformation back then? Was that widely used? I mean, that's really no. what that was. <clears throat> yeah, no. I don't, you know, I, I think I, the first time I heard digital transformation was about five years ago. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Because yeah. really, probably more then than now. I mean, that mm-hmm. was really transformative. This was really going from purely analog paper-based world 
into really the first experience of digital. But yet that term seems to have come up. I think the big analyst firms have have promoted that term over the last few years. But yeah, um, it, what you were doing back at that phase in the early 90s was really more of a digital transformation in many ways. Well, there's a lot of fun stuff going on. You know, the, I remember we, we, had, we had these Oki Data 2410 printers. Remember those things, right? I, I don't remember that model, but I do remember Oki Data for sure. They were big-ass printers that were usually on stands with green bar paper and stuff. But what was really cool about it is, like, that was a big moment in the implementation is when you fired that sucker up and it started like, because it would shake, like the with the like, and man, you knew work was getting done now, and there were there were invoices flying out of this sucker at lightning speed, and you're like, yeah, now it's uh, it's kind of uneventful now. Do you send? Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's actually funny to think about what you just said, right? We were putting in all this technology back then so that you could print more stuff on paper. Oh so, yeah. So maybe that is part of the transformation that we've experienced now is that you know we're we're truly trying to get rid of the paper, not just getting rid of handwritten paper. But we're actually trying to get rid of paper entirely. Yes. Well, there's a great, great story that's involved in that was this implementation that I did somewhere in New Jersey. And the, the, they had the, the, the process when we were going, actually, I was, I was taking them from a computerized system to a new system. So they had already been computerized for quite some time. And this has got to be probably the late 90s or so. And I'm going through their workflow and they had this four part invoice. So it was, you know, carbonless paper, four-part invoices. And so the, the white copy was sent to the customer. The pink copy was filed numerically. The blue copy was um, put someplace else and then the, 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 or went with the customer file. And then there was a gray copy that went in a box. And they had shifted from the Okidata 2410 dot matrix printer to uh, laser printers and then were making copies on different color paper. Right, so they would make the they would print out the white copy, then they would have to put in blue paper and then put in pink paper and then did the same thing. But remember, gray copy in the box, gray copy in the box. So I'm doing this workflow and I'm like, well, what's the gray copy in the box for? And they're like, oh, we don't know. It's like one of those classic. So I had I, I, I there was this wall of gray copies of boxes and boxes of invoices with gray. So I finally dug down to invoice number one or whatever it was. And it was because the sample form that came with their original software was a four-part form. And that's they just ordered the four-part paper. <laughs> year after year after year. And then we're physically making copies of it on gray paper. Think about that. Like this, They had to buy special gray paper so they could put it in the box. It's just madness. <laughs> I love it. Us humans are kind of funny creatures sometimes. Wacky, wacky stuff. And I'm sure that that continues on. And one of the things I learned out of that story, by the way, is when you are when you're documenting a, a workflow, don't change it while you're documenting it, no matter how stupid it sounds, because the minute you try to make adjustments to the workflow as you're documenting it, you're going to screw you're going to screw things up because you don't know there, there may have been a reason for those great those great copies. And the allegory is, is actually a thing called Chesterton's Fence, which I only learned about about five years ago, this thing called Chesterton's Fence. And he was, he's a philosopher who said, if you buy a piece of property and you, you, you're walking through the, the woods, let's say, and you observe a fence, he says, you don't take it down until you understand why it was put up. 
And I think that that's a great notion for some of the stuff that we do. You don't take stuff down until you know why it was put up, even if it's stupid, even if it doesn't seem to make any sense, because there may be a you know once in five year reason for the fence, and you don't know until you find out why it was put up. And you know my digging for the original invoice was I finally found why it was put up. It was it was clearly just a mistake, but there could have been a reason, and we we should always make sure that we don't adjust that reason until uh, we know why. Well, and my takeaway from from just that story is just really always asking the why. Yeah. Right. When we're analyzing a process like that and, and looking to automate or, or perhaps improve that process, we have to understand why and ask the questions. And I, I know your personality to know that you don't accept anything. It's face value mm-hmm. and, and that you're always going to dig into it. But I, I do think that's how situations with your gray paper story continue to happen because people are so focused on. The, the job at hand and, and getting something implemented that they don't ask enough why questions and really seek to understand it so that they can then, you know, look for the opportunities for improvement. And that story was a great example of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I know that, I mean, over the last decade or more, you have now been involved in conversations around value pricing uh, you're helping uh, Sage partners advance their business, rethink pricing strategies. Tell me about how you made that transition from working in a consulting practice that was implementing, you know, Microsoft uh, um, Great Plains, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And, and yep. now all of a sudden into, not all of a sudden, but over a decade or yeah. more, how did you end up doing what you're doing today? Yeah, <clears throat> I think the, one, the thing that happened was um, I, I sold my interest in that firm in, uh, December of 2001 or two, something, something like that. And 2002, 2002. And then for the next 18 months, I was doing some consulting. In fact, I had done, done some consulting for Microsoft as they were transitioning from purchasing this company called Great Plains based out of Fargo, North Dakota, and then it being really brought into the, the mothership. And I was on the, a team that was, was talking to their partner organizations like I was formally. So I had that, that area of expertise and background. I then got reintroduced to a guy that I, I had known for years, not well at all, but we had come across each other at, at, at Great Plains conferences, this guy named Taylor McDonald, who then was the head of the partner channel for a company called Best, which is now Sage. And he... He had me do some consulting work, but want, but hired me full time at Sage, with the whole idea that what he wanted me to do and create a practice area around was this this notion of how can we help partners make their businesses better. Uh, I, so I don't get involved in any transactional sales per se. Like there's there's no there's no commission associated with any software that goes out the door with me, and I'm not going to ask them you know how much did you sell this week, this month, this quarter, this year. My question to them is always, what can I help you do to make your business better? And then that led to some conversations with my now co-host, Ron Baker, about the notion of pricing. I had dabbled with what I didn't know was value pricing, but back in the firm that I was in, where we had done several implementations on what we called a fixed fee. Uh, but it was it was it, so I, it was probably more fixed fee than it was truly value price. But Ron wrote this great book called The Professional's Guide to Value Pricing. Which is you know the, the the original he calls that the Old Testament the New Testament is his his book called uh, implementing value pricing because the first one's out of print, 
But uh, and I had read that book, and I had him do a, a session for us at Sage, and we just hit it off real well as you know, from a from, from not only a business philosophy standpoint, but just the life philosophy kind of thing, and just remained close. And then when he had the opportunity to do this radio show, because he was connected, he was one of the original LinkedIn influencers back when LinkedIn influencer actually meant something. Yeah, yeah. and had I don't know two hundred thousand followers. Uh, and this Voice America got a hold of him, asking him if he wanted to be do a, a radio show for them because he was an influencer. And then he came to me, and we pitched this idea inside Sage, and that was eight and a half years ago. And here we are at 392 episodes and counting. That's amazing. So tell tell our audience a little bit more about your podcast because I've been a listener uh, over the years. You've had some absolutely outstanding guests on your show, but, but tell them a little bit about the show. And Including we'll, you, by the way, you've uh, been a guest. I, I, I was a guest on the show. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, but I noticed I was actually doing some research for today and I noticed I'm not on your top 10 episode list. So, um, you know, I'll get an, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to crack that top 10 list. So. so it is, you've had some fantastic, really outstanding guests on the show. So tell us just a little bit about the show, the, the background and, and, um, you know, maybe some of the, the highlights of some of the guests that you've brought on. Yeah, this this notion is, is this it's called, the show is called the Soul of Enterprise, and it's 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 meant to invoke this, and it's S O U L, not like soul of your shoe, but S O U L, and it it's meant to to inspire people to, to to have the understanding that business has a a spiritual, if not necessarily religious, component to it. And spiritual is I use that term loosely. It's it's really it's ethereal. It's it, it's it, it, there's an essence to business that is not just about the material. And in fact, the show opens with a quote from Ronald Reagan. And it's not because, well, Ron, my radio partner, is a huge Ronald Reagan fan. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay with Ronald Reagan. But, but he, he, he gave this speech at Moscow State University uh, when, uh, the, when, when Gorbachev had, was starting to, to change things over there. This is obviously before the fall of the Berlin Wall. But where he, he, he calls it, uh, speaks of the economy and mind in which there are no bounds on human creativity and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. So this notion that bringing, bringing our knowledge and applying our humanity to the stuff that we do, to the material, is what can create an inordinate amount of value. And our show is dedicated to understanding this, this economy and mind. Because it really is, when it, when, it, when it comes down to it, all work is knowledge work. All work is knowledge work. Because it is, it is the, it's human innovation and creativity and knowledge that we apply to physical things, to matter. Thomas Sowell, who's been a guest on the show, a great economist, makes the point that all of the, all of the material that is around us existed when the Neanderthals were here. The material for the computers that you and I are talking on, the our, the our pen, the paper, the microphones, the wall behind us, the books, all of that material was here. And it's just been human innovation, creativity, and knowledge that have transformed that matter into the stuff that we have. So all knowledge... Um, or all things are, are knowledge workers. All people are knowledge workers because yeah. of the application of that. There's so many profound connections to the things that we normally talk about on the show. And in that thinking about digital transformation initiatives, you know, implementing technology with the men and women on the front lines, 
they often feel very threatened by the implementation of that mm-hmm. technology. And I think, you know, my colleague, uh, Gene Singerini has often said that, you know, frontline workers are knowledge workers too, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what's also interesting to me is that while the knowledge or the uh, frontline workers often feel threatened by the technology, a big part of the value to them with the technology is to take away monotonous, repetitive tasks so that they can focus on the things that only humans can do. And unfortunately, we do an absolutely crappy job of explaining that part to many of those men and women, right? And so they're left feeling the threat of automation and the threat of that technology. And they miss that the real opportunity is here for the, the component of their work that does depend on their knowledge and their personality and their intuition and their customer facing abilities and things like that. And, um, but unfortunately, because we tend to do a bad job of communicating the why behind the tech implementation, they end up just being threatened by it instead. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really unfortunate because there's a, a real opportunity if we can all do better jobs as implementers of that technology of helping them understand that it's actually an opportunity for them to elevate their role, not dismiss their capabilities. Uh, I think we'd all be a lot better and, and they could be more successful in their role. Yeah, there's a, a phrase that I've used, if, if, and mostly this is with people who are in, say, accounting jobs, but it applies equally, I think, to, to the, those folks you're talking about. If your job can be completely replaced by a bot or a robot, your job pretty much sucks. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not, not, that, not that you suck. It's just that the, the, the job is, is extraordinarily difficult or ch- challenging. And, and, yeah. and, you know, Mike Rowe has got a, you know, this great show that he's done for years, this dirty job stuff. But uh, if you look at every single one of those episodes, you will not only see that, yeah, those jobs are dirty, but there's also a significant amount of knowledge that has to be brought to them in order to get them right. 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 And that's what we need to do a better job of as we are implementing these solutions is helping them understand that this is an opportunity to, to elevate their role, to really bring out the knowledge that they have and um, not make them feel like the tech is going to replace them. I, so you have a story that I want to make sure that we don't run out of time because you and I can sit and talk forever and never get to, to one of the stories. I really As we have, previously. I, we have. We have done that many times before, but we weren't recording in those times. That's true. That's true. So to, I know you have a story from in your past that is just very relevant to the, the types of stories we like to hear on the show. So tell us about Frank and, and give us a little bit about that background here. Frank, the story of Frank. So I was doing an implementation at a, a wine store in Manhattan and they had a warehouse in Brooklyn and Frank was the head of the warehouse in Brooklyn. Now Frank, Frank was a, you may remember this Justin, that that, that, uh, there was a time when NFL had this thing called the taxi squad, which was, these were guys who kept in shape and would practice with the team. And if they, if the third string guy got hurt, they would literally put you in a taxi and drive you to the game and you would play. So Frank was on the taxi squad when he was younger, not not where he was now, but for for the for the Giants, for the New York Giants back in the probably the the late fifties or sixties. Big dude, like six three. I mean, he three hundred. A big big guy. He was warehouse manager that moved wine cases of wine all over the place. That was that's where he got this job. Well, he ended up you know being the warehouse manager. And we're doing this implementation, and 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 so he had to he had to do one thing in the computer system, and that is. In an inventory transfer. So if wine needed to be transferred from the warehouse to the store or be accepted back, you know, maybe they were 
had too much at the store, had to come back in. So he had to do an inventory transfer, which if you've worked with any systems, you know that this is, the, the, this is five pieces of information. That, that's it. It's the easiest transaction because there's no ultimate effect on like the general ledger or anything. There's no accounting. It's, you know, debit credit, debit inventory, credit inventory. There's, so there's nothing that is really happening. But you have to be able to, to transfer this stuff. So the, And the five pieces of information are, number one, the date, which is usually today. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> there's the thing that you got to move, which is the item number, right? There's what warehouse did it come from, which... They, in their case, was only two. It was either coming from the store or going to the store. There was only two. And then where was it going to? And again, it was the, the opposite, right? right? And then the third one was how many things are you moving? Quantity. Like, quantity. Yeah. What's, what do you, what, quantity of the things that you're moving. Okay. You know, so you, I mean, you could literally teach a horse probably <laughs> like how to do this transfer. Like if it, <laughs> three. Three, okay, <laughs> so we could we can we can make that happen, right? I, I and, might I might challenge the horse, but that's that's, yeah, for, okay. that's <laughs> a, a, a separate conversation. Yeah. Um. So so, but but Frank, every I would get call after call from Frank. Ed, how do you do? How do you do the inventory transfer? Because it didn't happen every day. It it happened, you know, maybe a couple times a week max. And how do you do the inventory? And you know, first time, he, you know, I just I would show him, and then he would he would I write it down. I'm like, where, Frank, where are the notes that you wrote? I lost them. All right, so you know, now I'm I'm like typing out notes for him. This is going to help. Yeah, the Frank is a guy who has the 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 his username and password on the sticky note on the monitor. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, Frank, the password's your daughter's name. I mean, it's really you're not. I don't know if you're gonna how you gonna forget that, man. But okay. <laughs> but. Right. So, so Frank, and it was really got to know, it was like, how do you do it? How do you do it? over and over and over again? And I'm just, I'm, so finally, I'm, and in fact, I'm reading this book, which is now my go-to Bible by Peter Block called The Answer to How is Yes. And in this, this he, he tells a story, when somebody's asking you over and over again, how do you do it? It's not that they're stupid. It's not, it's not that they don't know how to do it. It's that they don't want to do it. And there's a difference. And if you and if you keep telling them how to do it over and over again, you're not helping them. You're not helping them because it, it's just it, it, they they are just then made to feel that they're that they don't have the knowledge. So what you have to do is you have to confront them with the reality of the situation. So what I said to Frank was, "Is Frank, I know you to be a smart person. You can get to be the warehouse manager here because you're an idiot." Clearly, this is just something you don't want to do. And Frank, like, physically moved back, and which, which I was happy because he could have crushed me. Like, you know, he, like, reached out. Physically. Like, yeah, fit, like, yeah. <laughs> ring my neck. I was probably 40 pounds lighter at yeah. the time, right? And they probably, Frank probably knew people that I would never have been found. Just, I'm just saying. <laughs> But I, then I saw it leave his body. Like I saw, I saw his shoulders like drop and he took a breath and he said, you're right. You're right. And then I started asking him questions. I said, well, Frank, well, he's actually before that, he said, you know, Ed, I thought I was going to be able to retire before I had to use computer system. That's yep. the exact words. And I said, um, 
Well, Frank, um, how old are you? 57. When are you going to retire? 65. I'm not a math major, Frank, but that's eight years from now. (laughs) And um, do you think that this company is not going to implement this software for eight years? Do you think you'd be able to hold out for eight years? He's like, no. So well, what do you what do you want to do? And then then it, there was another pause and another probably a little bit longer, and he said, "I'm ready now. Could you show me one more time?" And I showed him, and Frank became became the king of the inventory transfer. Like he would literally ran around going. Whoa! I need inventory to transfer. Get me. I am a king of inventory transfer. You couldn't get enough of it. Couldn't get enough of it because it, it, it wasn't the fact that he didn't know how to do it or it's that he didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until we literally had this breakthrough, his a breakthrough in, in neural pathways that he was able to accept, okay, yeah, no. I, I can do this and I and I will I will remember and w- I will learn how. It wasn't it wasn't his incapacity to do it. It was the, it was his own resistance, self-resistance that was blocking him. And there was no way that I could quote train him out of that. Yep. Because what I learned from that is that humans adult humans <clears throat> adult humans cannot be trained. Adult humans can be, are educated, and there's a difference between those two words. I don't like calling anything that we do training. There's potty training, which is for children. There's dog training and horse training. But humans, adult humans, are educated. And educate, the word uh, educare is a Latin word, and it comes from the same words as extrude. Education means to draw out of not to stuff crap into. So what we're doing is when we're educating humans, the understanding that we're, we're trying to do is we're, dry, we're drawing out of them the, the, the knowledge and insight that they already have and the gifts that they bring. In fact, one of the other things that I learned from Peter Block is to ask this question. It sounds like a really bizarre question to ask during a, a, a technology implica- implementation. But early on, you ask all of the people, what gifts do you bring to this implementation? And people are like, gifts? Yeah, gifts. What are the gifts that you have that you're bringing to this implementation? And that's the thing that we were talking about earlier, that insight, that knowledge, that humanity that they apply. Because they have stuff in, in there that no technologist has ever thought of. And I, I, so I love that you're bringing that, that you, you make that point um, because it, it just speaks to the fact that most of the time when we're implementing technology, we're trying to implement something to automate the most menial tasks, transactional type of mm-hmm. tasks. And there's such a great opportunity for the, the human side to come out but we don't talk about that enough when we're implementing. So I love this suggestion right here. What gifts do you bring to this implementation would allow them to draw out? Well, I have to interact with the customer. Well, I'm the one that's talking to the customer, you know, when this thing is happening. Great. Tell us more about that. What are you doing in that conversation? And, Mm -hmm. and how can us implementing this technology give you more time to do what you do best 
and less time on, you know, tracking the specifics of inventory and, and going to track the paperwork, right? Whatever yep. the case may be. Yep. And this is something that Peter Drucker brought up all the time in, in, in his writing. And I think it's so profound. And, and when I see instances of it, it makes me crazy. And that is systems should serve people, not people serve the systems. And that's everyone. That's these frontline workers. That's that that's that's the that's the folks in in the payables department, and who are who are oftentimes there's there's very sophisticated accounting type systems where the whole purpose is for the people to serve the system, and that yeah. makes me th- mean insane. Yeah, agreed. That's a really interesting quote from Drucker, and um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm glad you you brought that up. I, I want to go back. You, you talked about this uh, the book. The answer to how is yes with Peter Block. Is that one yeah. you're currently reading? That's a current. No, 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 no. Okay, I, that was... I, I was re- I read that book as I was working with Frank. So gotcha. it was it gotcha, was a, gotcha. a suggestion that had you know come fr- from the book. I said, well, let me try this out. <laughs> okay. I mean, it sounds like that that material, just based on the quick uh, you know example that you just provided, is would that content still be something that me and, and others in our audience should still be reading today. Is that Peter Block book still something oh, yeah, you recommend? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, and it's that's his best book. He's he's got a lot of books, but but um, flawless consulting is another good one. But the answer to how is yes, I think is his best book, and it's just a it's a it's a it's a book that contrasts these what he calls how based questions versus what he calls yes or what matters questions, and understanding that that the how based questions are are a defense mechanism against change. When, when people ask a, a series of how questions, how long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost? How do you get those people to change? Um, how have others done it successfully? How do you do it? All of those questions are, are intended to, not consciously, they're oftentimes subconscious, but they're intended to block the potentiality of change. And Block says, and I think this is just brilliant, the problem is that when these questions are ready, asked and answered too early in the process. So the askers of the questions often don't realize that that's what they're doing, that they're, they're, they're setting up a, block for a, a potential block for change. But the problem is, is the so-called experts, the so-called consultants who answer them. And, it, and, and you as the consultant need to say, we're not going to talk. No, we're not answering. And, and, and how do you transform? Forget digital transformation. How do you linguistically transform the question away from the how-based question to the what matters question? Yeah, I, I can tell you that that's probably something I am most guilty of. And I yeah. think that uh, in being in the, the example that you just provided with the consultants answering the question too early in the process, I'm definitely guilty of that. And, um, it's, it's only because I want to help. It's because I'm often, um, proud that I have the answer, (laughs) you know, and and I, I really want to help, but I think what you just said reminds me that sometimes the best thing that we can do is pause for a minute and really think about, um, you know, why they're asking that question. And I, I love the point that you just made that it's, it's not necessarily something that they're consciously trying to put up blocks. No, they're not Mr. Burns, you know, how can I make this implementation fail? Right. right. That's, right. That, that's not what they're thinking. They, they are right. thinking very practical. All of those how questions are extraordinarily practical. They're yeah. not dumb questions. They're really practical. And, and Justin, I would say this, you, you, you've experienced one that, that, that I know on a regular basis you transform. And that is the, when you ask, when you, as a salesperson, you're asked, how much is this going to cost? Right. You move off of that one. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause it's first, I'd first need to pivot to understand what the value is to you before I can understand what the, the cost is going to be. 
Yeah. Right. So that's one of them. And that's one of those transformations. Yeah. Well, one of my old a guy that I used to read and listen to a lot named Brian Tracy um, used to talk about as it relates to pricing and, and my current customers have probably heard me say something along these lines. I don't quote him verbatim, but it's not going to cost you anything unless we can help you find more value than what the price of the solution is. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, because then I'm not going to ask you to buy it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, that is not to deflect from a very important question, which is what is price, Correct. but is this the right time? And is this the right context for us to have that conversation? And I think as we're implementing with people who are particularly those who are anxious about it. And I, I think what you, what I think about when you're telling that example from Block's book is sometimes the most difficult people on the receiving end, actually, um, they're, they're not necessarily trying to be difficult, but they ask, as you said, really good questions that are mm -hmm. maybe even legitimate questions. And so it, it gets kind of hard to defend like, well, why shouldn't we be like, he's asking good things or she's asking mm -hmm. great things. Like I, I understand why they would want to know those things. And, but it's those people that also come off, especially in a group forum as being just difficult. And, um, you know, as if they're trying to just push back for the sake of pushing back. And I think that does affect the, the dynamics on an implementation. Well, and that's the difference between people who are being actively resistant. So Frank right. in the story was actively resistant, right? And he, so the, 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 the Blockian uh, uh, corresponding question to Frank's question, which is how do you do it, is, of course, what refusal are you postponing? So in other words, what is it that you're refusing to do that's getting in the way of you learning this? Hmm. So it, 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 there's a direct uh, connection to that. Yeah. Okay. I want, I, I looked up, um, some of the blog posts that you had done in the past, and I had missed this one previously, but I had a chance to, to read it in preparation for today. And I think it really speaks to something that we talk a lot, a lot about on the show, which is about empathy. And we have a lot of change management professionals that have been on the show and that listen to uh, this podcast as well. Change management folks are really thinking about, um, you know, the, the people side of change. So when we talk about digital transformation, we think a lot about the technology and we think a lot about the ones and zeros, you know, flying through cyberspace correctly. The change management professionals that are listening are also focused on the human element of that change. And so we, we often talk about empathy and that comes across as, um, you know, very caring for the individuals. But the, the real definition of empathy, as you point out in this blog post, is really just about transferring one's, you know, pain to, to another person. You advocate for, for thinking of this in terms of compassion versus empathy. And I'm going to link to this blog post. It's a really short blog post, but it's um, something I think all of our listeners should see. So I'll link to it in the show notes here. But can you tell me your take on empathy versus compassion? Sure. And this goes back to the fact that my dad was a Latin teacher and <laughs> it was like some really weird stuff would happen. You remember my big fat Greek wedding, right, Justin? Yes. There, there, there was, there, there's the running gag in that where he goes, give me a word, then I'll tell you how the origin is Greek, you know, and that like, right. And he would make up some crazy story about why orange was originally Greek. Right. But it was like that in my house growing up, but only with Latin. Like my dad would break down words. And uh, remember when he, when, he, when he talked about the, the mortgage. Mortgage is a concatenation of two Latin words, mort and gage. Mort means death. Gage means gr pledge. So a mortgage is a death pledge. <laughs> so you're like, oh, okay, it makes sense now. Uh, 
<laughs> but 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 so as a result, my my curse, if you will, is that I I am uh, I I love the understanding of origins of words, and the word empathy is a relatively new word in the English language. It only entered as part of Gestalt philosophy in the 1920s and 30s in Germany, which, you know, just take yourself through 20s and 30s in Germany and, you know, there's not a, not a, there's a crazy, crazy things happen in Germany in 20s. For sure. But, right. But, but, and, it, and the, the, it's, it's a, it means in suffering. The EM means in and the pathy, pathos um, means suffering. So it's in suffering. And it was meant to describe people who were in suffering with other people. The, the, the famous phrase that, that and that is, it, it's kind of entered into our vocabulary and uh, where Bill Clinton at one point has this, I feel your pain, right? And, and so I feel your pain. Well, that's actually not very good because that's a, that's a problem. Like if I, if I actually feel somebody else's pain, all we have now is two people in pain. We, we don't, we don't have this. So, and, and I, and I think when people say empathy, what they really mean is compassion. The, the pathos is still there. That, it, that's, again, that's suffering. But the COM means with. So to be with someone while they are going through their suffering, with them in their suffering, as opposed to feeling their suffering in their suffering is two different things. And I think what, what we really want is, is people who are compassionate to the point now where, you know, and I may lose this battle in the long run, where, where dictionaries are now changing the, the way they describe empathy to me, meaning compassion. So there's, you know, and words do change their meanings. I, I, I understand that. But I, but, I, but I also think that sometimes using a word that's, first of all, I think better, but also is slightly out of context, like using gift. Like you don't hear gift in a business context very often using compassion instead of empathy because empathy has now become a buzzword it's, yes it's just empathy 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 well you have to have empathy and just and it just flies over you and doesn't mean anything anymore and whereas if you say now compassion you need to show people compassion i think that makes them pause and say you know i don't that's a that's a word i don't often hear in this context so yeah. it i think i think it, it it enhances our ability to change um you know, one of the, one of the, the, the uh, Werner Erhard, who is the founder of Est, um, the, the weird guy, very weird dude. But but he says all change is linguistic. All change is linguistic. It's 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 about changing the words that we use. So I, I think one of in, in fact, one of the things that Ron and I talk about if we're doing engagements, helping people move to value pricing is we're listening for them to start to use our language. And that's a big marker for me. Like when yeah. people start to use the, the language that I use rather than the language that they brought, then, then I know they're, they're beginning to make the change. So we, we often say change language, like change client to customer, change fee to price. There, there's lots of these words that we should be substituting. And, and I think empathy and compassion qualifies as well. Yeah. I, as when you talked about, you know, Bill Clinton saying that quote, I think one of the challenges in particular with the men and women on the front lines is that they listen to the rest of us that have, you know, kind of corporate jobs working in a cushy air conditioned office and say, how the hell can you ever feel my pain? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's one of the things that really struck me the most about compassion. I actually think a lot of the guests that we've had on our show, I do believe they 
uh, have genuine compassion for the men and women that they're serving inside their organizations. But I think the point you made I, I, is one I agree with, which is that it's not a term that's commonly used uh, in a corporate context. It, it mm-hmm. actually sounds kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe it sounds too warm and fuzzy for the- Touchy-feely, the, California yeah. sit in a hot tub <laughs> yeah. BS. <laughs> it does, right? Kumbaya. But, but also, <laughs> and we've said this a lot in the show, words matter. And I do think that it matters- um, to really think about, are we trying to feel their pain? No, we're not trying to feel their pain, but we are trying to understand it. And I think that's what's most powerful so that we can help them then be successful despite this change that we're asking them to absorb. And I think compassion is a, a much better word to think well, about. Go ahead. And, and let me, yeah, and, and, and it's not even understand, because you even understanding of the pain, is, I think, is a problem. See, the, 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 the compassion is I am with them in their suffering. I don't pretend that I can feel your pain. I don't pretend that I can even fully understand it. But I can, I can be with you. I can be present with you. That's, that's what it means. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And, and then hopefully for the folks that are helping to implement this change, they can take that learning back mm-hmm. and, and somehow find a way to make that change less uncomfortable for the men and women on the receiving end of that and, and hopefully allow them to be more successful, which is really the, the theme of what this show is all about. Yep. Amen. Awesome. And I, I our time flies, um, whether we're on a podcast or <laughs> sitting at a restaurant and having a drink or whatever we may be doing, but uh, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show today. This has just been absolutely fantastic to have you as a guest, and uh, I think we need to do this more often. Well, truly my honor and pleasure, Justin. Well, thank you for doing that. For our audience, I do need to uh, wrap it up there. So I hope you found this conversation as enjoyable as I have. I am going to um, make a few references in the show notes, uh, make sure that we put Ed's LinkedIn profile in there and a link to the podcast that he hosts. Um, In particular, I highly recommend The Soul of Enterprise. I think uh, many of our listeners would really enjoy that show. So uh, please take a a moment to, uh, to go check it out. Quick reminder, the podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skyllful.com. And if you or someone you know is out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story or their story. And uh, let's see about getting you or them on the show as a guest. Thanks again. And Ed, thank you for participating today. 